Our scripture this morning is from Psalms chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in their derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come gathering together after a week of reflecting on life with gratitude, thanksgiving. God, may it continue, may it not be a day, may it not be once a year, but would you produce in us a a deep, deep, deep gratitude? Really, it's the same thing as asking that you'd give us eyes to see reality, because if we see reality, we could not help but be so grateful for a thousand things, even this very morning, that you've freely bestowed upon us that we do not deserve, namely the fact that our names are written in the book of life. You have adopted us as your children. And regardless, if we stopped there, the heart's rightful response would be that of brimming with gratitude. So continue to produce that in us as you conform us to the image of your son, as you set us apart as holy, as you sanctify us, would you continue to produce gratitude in us? May we increasingly, weekly, yearly, every decade become more and more a people filled with gratitude and a person filled with gratitude so much else takes care of itself in terms of what you call us to be and do. So help us. We confess being daily ingrates. We confess not seeing what the eyes you've given us to see. And so we we forsake that and ask for your help to continue to forsake it. And God, this morning, would you help us believe? Would you help our unbelief this morning as we think about some of your grandest promises? Would you lift our eyes? And consequently lift our heads. God, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you grant us? What we are not, would you make us by your grace through the power of your spirit working through your word? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Really good to see you. A couple of weeks ago, we finished up our series on Genesis 1 to 3. We finished up our foundation series, which we were in all fall. And next week, we're going to start the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be there for a little while, like 2023 or something like that. It's going to be awesome. But this morning, we're actually going to take a look at Psalm 2 as we kind of kick off thinking about Advent, thinking about Christmas. And I want you to see this vision of the king in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, if you want to go ahead and turn there, it's, 
It's what's called a coronation psalm or a royal psalm or an enthronement psalm. And it would be sung by the people of Israel at the installation of a new king. But we're going to see really quickly, this is about something greater than David or any other historical king in Israel. It's about a greater David. And here's the point. Our Lord reigns. Jesus Reigns. Now, I know it may not appear that way as you watch Fox News or CNN or whatever it may be, but friends, I've got news this morning from another network. Church, let's not fret over how things appear in this little moment. It is a blip in the grand scheme of redemption. So Psalm 2 is ultimately about Christ and his reign. And as such, Psalm 2 gives us an interpretation of history. And it actually follows the pattern, as does all of the Bible, that we saw in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, this idea of this conflict, the offspring of the serpent versus the offspring of the woman that will be ongoing, but ultimate victory. It's the same pattern we're going to see, temporary struggle with the sure promise of victory if we would just have the long view. So let's dive in. Let's consider four points from Psalm 2, the opposition to the king, the response of the Lord, the king of kings, and our rightful response. So first opposition to the king. We see it there in Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. We're going to learn from the New Testament, David wrote this psalm, and David begins here by asking, why? Why do the nations rage? It really is baffling, isn't it? Why do they rage against God? Well, we don't know ultimately from this question, but we, knew, we do know that rage they do, right? They are against him. They're angry that God is there. The nations rage and the peoples plot against him. They're trying to remove him, and they meditated on it. This very word, plot, here is actually the same word used in Psalm 1, verse 2. On his law, he meditates. There it is. He plots day and night. This is the idea. They wonder, and they think, and they dream, and they imagine, how can we replace God? How can we edge the creator out? They plot, they meditate, the kings of the earth, they set themselves, they rise up, they take their stand. You know, political leaders are notorious for not being able to agree about anything, right? But here they unite around this common cause. The rulers band together and they conspire with one another. And what is it they're opposing? Against the Lord and against his anointed. Really fascinating if we think about this in the context of the Old Testament in Psalm chapter 2. Against Yahweh and against his Mashiach, from where we get the word Messiah. Against the creator and against the Messiah, the Greek word in the Old Testament is Christos for Christ. Against the Father and against his anointed. And remember, Christ is not Jesus's last name, right? Joseph, Mary, they did not have Christ on their mailbox. Christ is not a last name. Christ is a title. It's a title for the royal deliverer. They set themselves against Yahweh and against the anointed redeemer, against the king, 
against the Messiah. We get some help here from the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, verse 41 says this. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, parentheses, which means Christ. You hear Christ? Think anointed one. Think Messiah. So they're against him. The world rages. The world plots. But the psalmist here says they plot in vain. It's to no avail. Their rage is fierce, but ultimately futile. They can rage. They can scream. They can plot. They can plan. It's all vanity. Just empty murmuring. I love the way the Lord rebukes people in Isaiah chapter 40. Listen to the way he speaks of these nations in Isaiah 40, verse 15 to 17. Behold, the nations, they're like a drop from a bucket. They're accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon, which was known for its massive forest, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Verse 21 of Isaiah 40, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? They can rage, but their rage and their plotting is ultimately in vain. The nations, to him, they're like a drop in a bucket. They're like dust on the scales. Barely noticeable. They make a lot of noise, but ultimately inconsequential as they rage against the creator like a grasshopper. Listen to Daniel chapter 4. As Nebuchadnezzar learned this lesson the hard way, and he confessed now all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? None can stay his hands. None can hold him back. Our God is uncontested. They will not succeed. Indeed, they cannot succeed. Back in the French Revolution, there was a revolutionary soldier, and as he was taking over, he climbed up on the Notre Dame Cathedral, and he climbed up, and he took, took the cross off the spine and threw it to the ground, and he yelled to those below, we'll pull down every vestige that reminds you of your God. And some lowly believer there from the ground said, well, you'll have to pull down the very stars of heaven. He's undefeatable. And so these nations and these peoples, they're opposed to God and they're opposed to his Christos. But what's their issue? Look at verse 3, Psalm chapter 2. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. See, they feel constrained. So they let us burst their bonds. Let us tear off their chains. Let us cast away the cords. Let us throw off the ropes. Remove the shackles of God's demands. See, because those who are opposed to God, they feel like God binds them. And they therefore want no such limitations. They want to live by their own rules. They want 
No law. They want to live however they feel. They think God boxes them in. They think God will restrict them. They want, again, autonomy. Sounds familiar, right? Straight up in Genesis 3. You ought to be the ones who determine what's right and wrong. You don't need him. Self-rule. You don't need God. He's a limiter. He's a miser. He's a joy kill. You should be on the throne. That's where the true freedom is. What a tragic lie. It's really no different today, right? People hate authority and they especially hate God's authority. As C.S. Lewis said, Sinatra, I did it my way, will be the national anthem of hell. And from the New Testament, we learn that this psalm finds fulfillment at the cross. Let me read from Acts chapter 4, verse 24. When they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, By the Holy Spirit, and here he quotes our psalm. Why did the Gentiles, nation, same word, ethnos, rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So notice this opposition finds fulfillment in the crucifixion. And notice that these enemies now are Herod and Pilate, the Gentiles, but even the people of Israel. The people of God became the enemies of God when they rejected the king. It's going to be a big theme we're going to see in the Gospel of Matthew. Here's how one New Testament scholar puts it. He says, the inclusion of Israel among the foes of the Messiah marks the beginning of the Christian understanding that insofar as the people of Israel reject the Messiah, they cease to be the Lord's people and can be ranked with unbelieving Gentiles. See, his own people raged and plotted, but ultimately it was in vain. What's God's response secondly? Look at verse 4. Psalm 2-4. What is God's response? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. See, God laughs at their opposition. He finds it cute. He holds them in derision. He ridicules them. He scoffs at them. Friends, it's opposed, it's to oppose God is vanity. It's vain to do so. He has no rivals. No serious threat to him exists. As the nations and the rulers and the peoples, they're against him. Notice what he's not doing. Our God's not shaken. He's not in panic mode. He's not being whisked away by a secret serviceman to the basement. He's not pacing the floor of heaven, not wringing his hands. He's not worried about what he will do. He looks at them like we would look at ants in the corner of the kitchen. He's unconcerned. Like a little yappy dog. Why are, the, why are the little dogs the yappiest? Little dog syndrome. I have two lap dogs, and by that I mean Mrs. White has two lap dogs, and they're the yappiest. And listen, I would never dare kick a dog. 
I wouldn't. Proverbs 12 says the righteous person has regard for his animal. Christians treat their animals well. Dr. Eckert has that verse tatted right here. It's tattooed on his chest. Proverbs 12.10. So I would never do that. But listen, all a UPS man would have to do is just cock that leg back, you know, about halfway. And these little yappy dogs are going flying. The Lord's not threatened by the world's raging opposition and vain plotting. They don't have a clue. They don't have a clue that they're standing against omnipotence, all power. They don't stand a chance, and so the Lord laughs. They couldn't even take their next breath if he hadn't graciously given it to them. He upholds their very being by the word of his power. God's not mocked. He will have the last word. And so what does he do? He smiles. He laughs. But it's a severe smile. You've seen those, right? Those smiles where you know there's no joy behind that smile. Kamala Harris is really good at it. You see her smiling. She's mad. You know who else was good at it? I'm a basketball guy. Kobe Bryant. By the way, do you believe Kobe Bryant died this year? Seems like a decade ago. Well, if you ever saw Kobe smile on the court, you knew you were in trouble. You got that smile and you just know he is raging mad and here come, we're in trouble. Here come the game winners. This is a severe smile. And the rebuke of the Lord then moves from laughter and it moves to fury. Look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He will respond in terrifying fury and wrath. They will be judged. And he says he set his king on Zion. Not a king or not even the king. He says my king has been set on Zion, my holy mountain. God rules through his king in Zion. Well, what does that mean for us? Well, we need to know a little bit about Zion. Zion started out as a, as a historical place, as a is a Jebusite fortress and David and the people of Israel come and they conquer it and he renames it and then he brings the ark to this city and so it becomes a sanctified city it becomes a holy city and then Zion begins to be used all through the Bible in kind of a metaphorical way not just that particular site but the whole mountain or all the city of Jerusalem or even the whole people of Israel sometimes are called Zion and then we see ultimately Zion is in heaven that's what we learn in the New Testament what is Zion Zion is heaven it's our heavenly mom our mother the Jerusalem above Galatians 4 says or Hebrews 12 puts it this way we the church we've come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and so we're already inhabitants of Zion the heavenly Jerusalem. Zion is in heaven and God responds then to the opposition of these people with laughter and fury and he's going to respond through this king who's in Zion. That moves us to our third point, the king of kings in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is a really important verse one of God's favorites why because it's quoted all over the New Testament this king notice the king in verse 6 is also the son in verse 7 I've set my king on Zion and he said you are my son so we learn now that the king is also the son the Messiah is the son 
This is a really important verse. It points backward and it points forward. It points backward to some promises I hope you're familiar with. You will be after Matthew, and that's the promises, the covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7, where God promises David he will have a descendant, a son, who will have a throne, a kingdom that will be universal. He will always rule. And in that covenant, 2 Samuel 7, God says this, I will be to him, that descendant, that son of David, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Psalm 89, actually keep your finger in Psalm 2 and flip over with me to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is all about this coming king, this coming son of David. We call it a royal psalm or a messianic psalm. Look at Psalm 89 verse 3. You've said I have made a covenant With my chosen one, I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And then look at verse 20, how he speaks about this king. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil, I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. This is the king of kings. It pointed back then. Psalm 2 points back to these promises to David, but it also points forward. Again, this verse is quoted many times in the New Testament, and each time it speaks about Jesus and Jesus becoming something after his finished work in the first century. Again, as we already saw in Acts chapter 4, this psalm finds fulfillment not in the second coming, but in the first coming of Jesus. In fact, Acts chapter 13 explicitly says this verse finds fulfillment at the resurrection of Jesus. Let me read it to you. Acts chapter 13, verse 29 helps us see the apostles and Jesus help us understand this psalm. Verse 29, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, the cross, and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. One of my favorite verses in scripture, Acts 13, 30. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, chapter 2, verse 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So Psalm 2, 7 finds fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus. And it's this declaration of adoption. Today I have begotten you. Today I've become your father. And it's not as though the son was not the son from all eternity. There is a heresy 
known as adoptionism. That's not what this verse is teaching. No, he's always been the son. But at the resurrection, God the son, incarnate, Jesus of Nazareth, becomes vindicated to an exalted status that he did not have before the resurrection. Crowned with authority. The first few verses of Romans actually tie all this up for us. Romans, you know, is a very important book. Notice how he starts, what he wants us to know about Jesus. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, concerning his son, Jesus, who was descended from David, there you go, according to the flesh, and here we go, was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he was always the son, but at the resurrection he becomes the son of God in power. He's obtained this new exalted status. The king has been granted all power and all authority as he defeats death. That's what it means. Today I have begotten you. Church, do you believe this? Do you believe that our king, the Messiah, Jesus, has all authority? Does it affect the way you feel? Does it inform your emotions? Does it affect the way you pray with confidence? Does it affect the way you work with tenacity, knowing your labor in the Lord's not in vain? Does his exalted status affect the way you share the gospel? Does it motivate you to share the gospel? Does it affect the way you do marriage? The way you spend your money? The way you invest financially? The way you raise your kids? He is Lord. All of Christ for all of life. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20, speaking of God's power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Philippians 2, because of the cross, because of the resurrection. Verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has all authority, right? Think about the Great Commission. The Great Commission begins with the Great Declaration. We should never use Matthew 28, 19, and 20 without first reading 28, 18. 18 comes before 19 and 20 for a reason. And 18 says, all authority, Jesus says, has been given to me. Verse 19, therefore, because of that, go and make disciples of all nations. God mediates his power and his sovereignty through the Son who's been risen from the dead. He has been set on Zion. He is now ruling 
from the right hand of God. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at his right hand with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him because of the resurrection. So Psalm 2-7 is about the resurrection. Then we have verse 8 of Psalm 2 saying that after this resurrection, Christ is given the nations. Look again at Psalm 2-7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The father invites the son to ask for the nations after his resurrection. Isn't that the order we just saw in the Great Commission? All authority has been given to Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Here it is right now. He's been begotten. He's been installed as king at the right hand of God. And he asks for the nations as his heritage. The very nations, verse 1, that once raged against him will become his inheritance. Isn't that exactly what God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? That through your offspring, Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Here we see an extension of that. They'll be blessed through the risen Davidic king. In other words, the Messiah. I love Daniel's vision. Listen to Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man. You know, that was Jesus' favorite term for himself, the son of man. It's coming from this verse right here. This is a really important verse for Jesus. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that is Yahweh, and was presented before him. By the way, notice this verse is often misread. This also is not a second coming verse. Notice this son of man, Jesus, is coming from earth to the ancient of days. From earth to Yahweh. This is not a descent. This is an ascent. Again, speaking of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And listen to what it says. After this ascension, after he comes to the ancient of days, and to him was given dominion. You know, that's exact same terminology from the Great Commission. All authority, dominion, same word, has been given to me. This son of man is ascended into him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Church, lift your head. Do you believe these promises? The nations rage against them, but they will end up bowing in allegiance to this king. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, wins. He earns the nations. The nations will be his heritage, and the ends of the earth will be his possession, will be. God promises that. In fact, look to another messianic psalm with me. Look over at Psalm 72. The ends of the earth will be his possession. Look at Psalm 72, 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. There it is. Notice the king, the coming Messiah, is the son. We should have not been surprised. First century should not have been surprised that the Messiah was the son of God. It's all over the Old Testament. Give to the king 
the royal son. And look at Psalm 72, verse 8. This king, may he have dominion, authority, power from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. There it is, Psalm 2.8. Look at verse 17. May his name Endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Straight out of Genesis chapter 12. Promises to Abraham. Or in Psalm 22, you don't have to turn there. I'll be fast. But Psalm 22, we all know it because Jesus quotes it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's from Psalm 22. And I think Jesus has the whole psalm in mind. He often does. And we don't read usually the whole psalm. But listen to the ends of that psalm. Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Friends, we need a little bit of optimism. Optimistic about the victory of Christ. We tend to get sour. It's easy. News wants us to, but look what God has done. Just zoom out for a minute. Roughly 2,000 years ago, there were no Christians. There was no one who confessed Jesus Christ is Lord. Today, there are 2.3 billion people who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 2,000 years ago, nothing. Today, 30% of the world's population believe that God became a man and died and was raised as Lord. Incredible. And I know America's not looking so hot right now, but there, there is more to the world than America. Did you know that in Latin America, 3,000 people a day become Christians? Not incredible. There's this book called The Next Christendom by Philip Jenkins. It's actually a little bit dated now, but he argues and shows statistically that the epicenter of Christianity is no longer the West. It's Asia and Africa and Latin America. And he predicts that we will observe a global Christianity by the year 2050. Lord, may it be. The king, this psalm says, who is the son, will inherit the nations. He will possess the ends of the earth. God has said so. Do we believe him? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says that God appointed the son as the heir of all things. Colossians 1, 16 says, all things were created through him and for him. And when the son asked the father for the nations, God will grant that request. Look at verse 9, Psalm 2, 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. They'll be ruled by God with a rod of iron, dashed like fragile pottery. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. 
And how does he do it? How does he rule? How does he overcome his enemies? Through his word. That's the commission of the new covenant. God rules through his word. That's how he defeats his enemies. It's not a physical conquest in the new covenant. It's a spiritual conquest. Listen to the way the book of Revelation puts it in chapter 19. Speaking of this victorious king, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's through the word that this king is victorious. That's how he's doing it. 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. We were once enemies. Now we're under his feet in the sense that now we've dropped our agenda and we've submitted to his. He's our king. We serve him. We have submitted to him. That's what he's doing now, ruling and reigning through his word. What then, fourth, should be our rightful response? See it in verses 10 to 12. How should we respond? Well, quickly, seven ways in these three verses. First, there in verse 10, he says, be wise. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Find wisdom. I love the way Proverbs 4 says, says 4, 7, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. That's the first mark of a wise person is that they value wisdom. They're pursuing it their life long to see your need for it. Get it, whatever you get. And what is wisdom in the Bible? Wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. It's living the way God created us to live. It's living the way he's ordered things. Proverbs also tells us the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's, it's a life lived for his glory, right? One of our core values, all of life. Worship Jesus in all of life. That's what it means to fear the Lord and be wise. Second, he says, be warned. There in verse 10, be warned in the middle. O rulers of the earth. O kings, be wise and be warned. And remember, friends, remember this. Maybe you don't know the Lord here today. God's warning you. But remember this. His warning is grace. It's grace. You know, this psalm could have ended in verse 9 with wrath. But he has this gracious invitation. Oh, would you be wise? Be warned. I'm coming to judge. But you can have salvation if you trust in me. Turn from your sin. Turn to this king, believe the gospel, follow him. Third, serve the Lord with fear. Look at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear. Serve God. Give your life to him. And what's the main way that looks like practically? To live for the Lord is to live for his church, right? First John 4, how do we love God? Ultimately, by loving his people. And if we don't love his people, we can't really say that we love God. Again, one of our core values, we serve the church. Fourth, there in verse 11 as well, second half, rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Isn't that a fantastic definition of worship? We rejoice for all the ways God is for us, but we do so with trembling because he's the God of all the earth. He's holy. We serve the king who has all authority, who will inherit the nations. He's for us if we've trusted in Christ. Service and fear and joy and trembling, they all go together in the Christian economy of things. Fifth, verse 12, submit to the Lord. Notice the way he says it there. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. 
So submit to the authoritative king. Kiss the son. That was imagery that would often happen in the ancient Near East when, when a king would win. He would have lesser kings and the armies come by and literally bow down and kiss their feet as a sign of humiliation. Submit to him. Kiss the son. Yield to him. Give up your will. Bow to him. Serve him. Again, really, we're saying nothing other than repent. That's what the word means, repent. It's an old school word nowadays, very biblical word, and it just means to change your mind. Drop your agenda, whatever your agenda is for your life, let that go and take up his agenda for your life. Submit to the son. Sixth, find the good life. Blessedness, which remember means happiness by seeking refuge in him. Look at that last line there in the psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 1 and 2, they're very tightly connected in a lot of ways. And of course, they give us the double doorway into the whole book of Psalms. And they're bracketed by blessedness. Here, this Psalm 2 ends with blessedness, happiness. But Psalm 1 begins with it. Look at Psalm 1-1. Blessed, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Verse 3, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. I love this imagery. How is the, the blessed person? They're fruitful. They yield fruit in its season. His leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. So find the good life by finding refuge in the Lord. Find blessedness. Remember, he's coming to judge. It's right there in the same verse. And the only way to find refuge from him is to find refuge in him. And refuge in him is blessedness. It's happiness. It's contentment. It's flourishing. It's actual freedom. It's true freedom. Unlike all the lies that the world tells about freedom, let us cast off his fetters. Let us throw off the chains. No, true freedom is found when bonded to the Lord, as the old hymn writer put it, Lord, make me captive that I might be free. A train off its tracks is not free. A tree uprooted from the ground is not free. A fish out of water is not free. Freedom is found in living in accord with the way God created us to live. It's his way. That's freedom. That's joy. That's blessedness. Seventh and finally, make disciples. Another core value. We are disciples who make disciples. Our king is reigning. Matthew 28, 18. Our king has been given all authority. Therefore, go and make disciples. He's in control. He has the power. He's ruling. He is putting enemies under his feet now. He's done it in this room. He's going to continue to. And here's the amazing thing, that God now delegates that authority to us, the church. Listen to the way Revelation chapter 2 puts it. Speaking to the church, you know these letters to the churches in Revelation 2, the one who conquers, talking about the believer, and keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, 
even as I myself have received authority from my father. It's the same thing we saw in Genesis 3.15. Ultimately, Christ will crush the head of the serpent. But what does Paul tell the church in Romans 16? Tells them the, the enemy will soon be trampled under your feet because now God has delegated his authority to the son. And how does the son exercise his authority through the word who has now been given the word? The church. How's this king ruling? How is he receiving the nations? Through us, through the mission of the church. Through us, this king is receiving his rightful inheritance. God is blessing the nations through the offspring of Abraham. God is defeating his enemies through us as we go spread the word and people turn from enemies to friends. Our weapon is the word. People kiss the son. They submit to the son as they turn from their sin and turn to him in faith and repentance. They believe the gospel and they confess. They add their voices to that innumerable number that says, Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm no longer Lord. He is now the Lord. In the promise of 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until all his enemies have been put under his feet. One author put it, through the sending of the disciples, that's you and I, into the world, Christ, the anointed king, is receiving his rightful inheritance, all the nations of the earth. And since he is the seed of Abraham, Galatians 3.16, this sending out of his church is also the means by which he is bringing blessing to all the families of the earth. Is that not incredible? Some of us think, ah, evangelism, that's not me. Discipleship, that's not me. God could have done what he wanted. God could have created from day one with everything the way he always wanted, a world of redeemed souls that would never die, no sin. He could have done that. He didn't. What has he done? He's created a world filled with sin, but he sent a son who would redeem us from sin. And now he gives, he could have wrapped it all up in the first coming of Jesus, just brought in resurrection, eternity, but he didn't. He left us. And what did he leave us to do? We get to be a part. He's promised way back in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless the whole world through the offspring of Abraham. And he's left us now to be a part of his plan. What a privilege. It's not a burden. What a joy. Through the church. Psalm 2.8 says the ends of the earth will be his possession. Acts 1.8, King Jesus commissions us to go and be his witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the ends of the earth. And so, friends, we need to retrieve this optimistic vision of the Christian mission. The Great Commission will be successful. Got to have the long view. Christianity is a religion of world conquest. Missions is a summons to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what missions is. We want to see all people confess that Jesus is Lord. And so we, the church, we exist to promote his authority, to promote the crown rights of King Jesus in all of life, every nook and cranny, everywhere we go. Jesus has won the nations by virtue of the resurrection, by virtue of the death of death, and by his ascension, his installation at the right hand of God. He's been given all authority. Therefore, disciple the nations. That may mean going. Come talk to us if that might be you. 
For many of you, it will mean staying, and it means evangelism and D groups. Church, our king is reigning. All hell, the power of Jesus' name. O seed of Israel's chosen race, now ransomed from the fall, hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Let every tongue and every tribe responsive to his call, to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. Oh, that with all the sacred throng we at his feet may fall, we'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Pray with me. Father, we confess together that we haven't believed your promises. We pray that we would. Pray that we would believe that you have set your king in Zion. Jesus Christ is at your right hand. He has been given all authority. He is now ruling and reigning. God, we confess, forgive us for letting the news inform our worldview more than your word. Give us a clear vision of Christ, the authoritative one. And I pray that as we think about what this means for us, first and foremost, it means that we submit every area of our life to your lordship. So if there are areas in our lives where we're trying to hold back, Would you reveal that even now? There are pockets in our heart and in our thoughts and in our lives that we've not yet yielded to this king. Show us that that we may turn from it. And then as we think about our mission, would you fuel the fire? Let us be active in all that we do, everything that we do, from our work to our relationships to our schoolwork to our marriages, to our parenting, to the way we spend money, to the way we use our time, would it be a faithful reflection of the fact that Jesus Christ has all authority? Help us to be faithful to do just that, to promote your crown rights everywhere. We're thankful for the promise that you will get it done, and we're thankful that we get to be a part of it. Thank you for including us. May we now, with our voices, but even more so in our lives as we leave this place, Hail Jesus Christ, Lord of all. We pray it in his name. Amen.